Shalom, and welcome to the Pardes Center for Jewish Educators podcast series, Chanukah, Pesach, and Purim, Walk Into a Bar. Each episode, Rabbi Svi Hirschfeld will be joined by guest educators who will reveal the deeper meaning for each festival or year cycle event. The Talmud says when wine enters, secrets come out. So prepare to be intoxicated as our great educators each bring a text with them that encapsulates the spiritual essence and holy work of that time of year that will change our and our students' lives forever. This podcast episode is sponsored by Pardes Seminar alumna Winter 2015, Dr. Julie and Glenn Cole, in memory of her beloved parents, Roy and Joan Abramson. Zichonam Livracha. Welcome to the bar. Okay, hello and welcome to the famous and infamous Jewish educational podcast from the Pardes Institute, particularly from the uh, Pardes uh, Center for Jewish Educators. I got that right. Uh, It's our Hanukkah, Pesach, and Purim podcast where we discuss the Chagim, the Jewish holidays, uh, with other fine, excellent educators here at Pardes, with the goal of both offering you a little personal inspiration and some, if you're in teaching and education, some ideas you might want to use uh, with your students or participants, however that might be relevant. Uh, we are, of course, discussing the upcoming holiday of Shavuot. And with us today, in addition to our executive producer behind the scenes, Ruben Margaret, who's holding the microphone, we have Tzvi Grummet and Rachel Friedrichs, both outstanding teachers, educators, coaches, uh, whatever else we want to say, uh, who are going to share uh, a text and some ideas and reactions. And here we go. So... Uh, I'm looking to see who wants to start to see if anybody's waving at me. Uh, Rachel, are you okay if we start with you? Sure. Okay. Pleasure. Great. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, so I'm Rachel Friedrichs. Excited to be joining the podcast just in the nick of time as the holiday cycle um, for the school year starts wrapping up. Um, so I picked a text from Ruth Raba. Obviously, Megillah Root is uh, the Megillah we read on Shavuot, and so um, it's nice to find themes from the reading and the rabbi's interpretation of that reading as it connects to the to the Chag. But before we actually look at the Midrash that I chose, um, I just want to talk for a moment about Megillah Root um, and generally why it's understood to be connected to the holiday of Shavuot. So one kind of um, straightforward answer is that Shavuot is called Chag HaKatsir, the holiday of the harvest, and the book deals with harvesting um, the wheat crop. And so, oh, there's that kind of um, agricultural connection. Um, but, of course, there's always other possible explanations or interpretations um, and, and one that I want to suggest here is the kind of the theme of chesed or kindness that appears in the Megillah. Um, it's sort of a motif that runs throughout. Famously, right, Naomi is, um, appreciates the kindness that Ruth showed her by kind of staying with her. Um, and, you know, Naomi even tells Ruth that, you know, God will then do kindness for you in exchange for the kindness you've done for me. And the word chesed itself is repeated numerous times in the book. Um, and so clearly um, that's one of the core themes of the book. And then so then the question is, well, 
then does that have anything to do with Shavuot? Um, and the Midrash that I chose to discuss is um, kind of picks up on this theme of chesed or kindness, and it's from the second parak of Ruth Rabbah, um, the 14th Midrash there, which reads, I'm only reading a piece of it, um, it reads, Amar Rabbi Zera, Megillah zu ein ba lo tum'ah, velo tara, velo isur, velo heter, velama nichtava, lelamdecha kama schar tov legomle chasidim. Right, so it's interesting. Rabbi Zera is kind of making an assumption that if <laughs> there are no halachot, right? If there's no clear, you translate for us, oh, thank you. Yes, of course. I'm sorry. Okay, yes. Uh, let me hand, whip up my handy translation. Then. Okay, yes. Um, Rabbi Zera says this book of Ruth does doesn't have anything in it concerning with laws of impurity or laws of purity, not with what's forbidden and not with what's permitted. So why is the book written? to teach us the greatness of the reward for acts of loving kindness. There we go. Thanks. Okay. So the assumption that Rabbi Zayra makes, of course, is that, you know, is there any point at all to a book that isn't dealing with halacha? Um, and, but he has an answer. Wait, you might have assumed that, but you're wrong because books that don't deal with halacha do, in fact, have a purpose. And the purpose of Megillat Root is to teach us um, how important... Um, you know, acts of chesed, of milut chesedim, um, acts of kindness are. In the case of this book, right, it seems there's, you get directly rewarded for those acts, right? So um, you're kind of motivated to behave in a certain way, thinking of the needs of others, putting others before yourself, um, you know, going above and beyond for the sake of others, all these things that we see in the Book of Ruth. Um, Okay, so... Megillat Root is here to teach us about Chesed, and we read Megillat Root on Shavuot. So, what's the connection? Are you asking us? Are I you, am. This I'm is asking. Participatory? It's not rhetorical. It's not rhetorical. The, the connection between Chesed and Shavuot. Mm. So, I'll let uh, Rabbi Gromit go first, and then I'll answer second. Um, if there is one, sorry, you know, of course, there's that, there's that possibility for you to push back as well. But I, I want us to at least consider it first before we reject yeah, the I'm, premise I'm, of the question. So I'm, I'm thinking out loud, um, because I'm, I'm not convinced that this midrash that you quoted over here um, is coming to answer that question, mm. right? It could be this midrash is coming to talk about something else. Yeah. But if there is a connection between them, then it sounds to me like um, assuming that Shavuot is the time that Hashem gave us the Torah and that's what we are celebrating, then um, maybe that in itself is an act of chesed. And that, that was an act of chesed that is then modeled and then Megillah comes to model a whole different kind of chesed. Because obviously none of us can give the Torah at least not in the same way that God did. That was nice. So, uh, and yeah, spot too. We'll, we'll, add, we'll add the background effects of the <laughs> later. Ruben will take care of that. So, my association was that since we read the Aseret Hadibrot, the ten, the ten Commandments, and that what's given first to the Jewish people when God reveals his presence is law, that you could come away with this impression that law is the only way in which we serve God, relate to God, or that God is concerned about. So, I feel like that Midrash is telling us that we're getting the wrong message if we think that's the case. That uh, chesed, which is so hard to define because it's hard to come up with rules for chesed, right? Uh, it's more like an attitude, a posture, a commitment that can express itself in different situations in different ways. 
So it's not a legal language in a lot of ways, and it's not concerned. You can never fulfill your requirement for chesed, or you're never done doing chesed, or chesed doesn't only apply in certain times of the day or during the week. So I feel like it's reminding us that whole world of religious, spiritual life that is not rooted in halakha, uh, at least not in the traditional sense of the word, but it's rooted in something else in terms of how we relate to one another. What I've modeled here as an educator, is outsourcing the hard intellectual work to other people so that you don't have to do it yourself. Note, note to all the teachers out there listening. Um, great. Thank you for sharing. So, yes, you both picked up on ideas that I had, my brain began maybe thinking about, but you each articulated them really nicely. Um, something that's we said, kind of this idea of Matan Torah as like a model of like kind of this amazing gift, right? And that's certainly a form of chesed, sort of, we, Israel got this wonderful treasure that, you know, for generations we have. Um, exactly, you know, this idea that we're constantly re-receiving the Torah and it's, you know, constantly um, evolving generation to generation as new generations take upon themselves the mantle of Torah, etc., that language that we often use. Um, right, it's sort of the model of, like, the gift that keeps on giving, right? This idea that the ultimate chesed is when you empower someone to become independent and no longer be reliant, or the ultimate staka rather, but, um, you know, not reliant on staka anymore, and so, you know, we've been given this gift, and it's con- we constantly can re-engage, it's constantly relative, it's uh, relevant, and so it's a gift that keeps on um, giving, so to speak, which certainly I think could be argued as an interesting model um, for for chesed. Um, so as a teacher, I guess another thing that I was thinking about in general with Shavuot is that it very often aligns with the end of the northern hemisphere's end of the school year. Um, and so is there something that we can kind of mine there as this Chag kind of, um, you know, leads us out, you know, wraps the school year, you know, beginning of summer vacation, et cetera. Um, And so if there's something about this intersection between, you know, we stay up all night and we learn Torah and it's about receiving the Torah and cherishing, um, you know, our tradition, um, and then kind of with this veil now that I'm positing we can consider as well of thinking about the role that chesed can play in the learning of Torah, um, and how that might then also kind of connect to the end of the year. In other words, if you as a teacher sort of had both, um, you know, academic, cognitive learning goals for your students, but hopefully also sort of affective, um, you know, spiritual heart goals um, for your student, is there some opportunity here to pull these themes from Shavuot and kind of use them to culminate a reflection you know, culminate the year and, and spur reflection in your students about, you know, how they've grown in Torah and how they've grown in Chesed and, and in what ways those things are, are interconnected, which I think hopefully we think they are. Um, you know, you shouldn't have one uh, without the other um, as, as a way for students to kind of um, embrace the learning and the growing in lots of different ways that they've done over the course of the year and, of course, to set them up both for the Chag and then, you know, the summer vacation that's soon to follow. I don't, I, yeah, I don't know if either of the other educators here have given thought to kind of the unique role that Shavuot... You know, I think Chagei Tishrei in the start of the school year is something we think a lot about, um, but Shavuot at the end of the year, I've seen less, dis- less discussed and less written about, so I don't know if there's any... 
So two thoughts. As you were talking, Rachel, um, what struck me was that you were talking about chesed as opposed to tzedakah um, at one point. And tzedakah is where um, you give a man a fish, and chesed is when you teach a man to fish. Right. Right? Uh-huh. Um, and chesed is, is an, really an enabling of, of somebody to go out on their own. That seems really appropriate for the end of the year. Because one of the things we try to do as teachers, is, um, I think, is to get the students to the point where we become unnecessary and they can go out on their own. So at the end of the year, uh, Shavuot is a time to reflect on um, where they have come in that process of being able to go out on their own. How much have we been successful in our chesed to our students in making them into really independent learners? You know, it occurs to me it raises a scary question at the end of the year. Do they see the Torah as chesed, or do they see it as this burden that's put upon them, right? And after a year where they've had homework and tests and, you know, it's been part of their school experience, so now the question is, have we given them that sense that Torah is not just another class or, mm-hmm. or topic, but uh, it's, it's something much more, and we would want them to see it as a gift and not as something that's been imposed. And the Jewish people have that problem also, right? With the, No one's using that midrash, but uh, midrash of the mountain over their head, right? That maybe we, didn't, we weren't so excited when it came down to it to receive the Torah either, but maybe God had the same educational problem. He had to force us <laughs> to take it, but he ultimately wants us to see it as a chesed, as a gift, and not as something that's imposed upon us. So that's a very powerful thought. Okay, Tzvi Grummet, you're up. Well, you, you gave me a perfect segue. Good. I tried to do that. Uh, I succeeded. I was, I was toying with that midrash um, to bring that here today. Um, I chose a different one, but it comes to a, 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 almost the same place. Um, there's a midrash in the Sifrei in Dvarim. Um, the midrash um, is basically commenting on uh, psukim from Ha'azinu, um, but that reflect back on the whole scene of Matan Torah. And Midrash says as follows, it's a fairly long Midrash, I'll simply read selections from it. When God um, came to give the Torah to Israel, he didn't just approach Israel, but he approached all the other nations. For, and then the Midrash goes through a series of nations that he approached, um, asked them if they wanted to receive the Torah, um, and each one of them, for a variety of reasons, rejected it. Um, according to the Midrash, the refrain was, Ein anu the Torah. No, we can't accept that because the Torah goes against one of our core principles, whether it's the core principle of, of theft. Our culture is based on theft, or our culture is based on murder, or something like that. Until finally... Um, God came to B'nai Israel and asked them, are you going to accept the Torah? Um, and they accepted it with, uh, with no hesitation. They said, as opposed to asking, um, to asking what's in it, as all the others did, they, um, they said, we will uh, we'll do what it says, and then, so now we're ready to listen. Um, a reversal. Um, I love this Midrash as a child, because I... It was taught to me with great love, and, uh, and I thought the Midrash said beautiful things about the Jewish people and how special we were as opposed to the rest of the nations of the world. Um, as a young adult, um, I had a lot of trouble with this Midrash because it bothered me a lot. It bothered me that the Midrash was knocking everybody else. You don't need to knock everybody else in order to, in order to say that you're good. 
um, and the notion, this notion of of the um, of the supremacism of we're better than everybody else, and that's why God gave us the Torah. I was very uncomfortable with that for many, many years. Uh, I fell in love with this midrash again um, over the last ten to fifteen years because I began to look at it through a completely different set of eyes. Um, when you look at the nations that are that are listed here in the midrash, so. Um, he goes to Esav, he goes to Yishmael, he goes to Ammon and Moab. And when you look at, at, at that list of nations, that list of nations is essentially the list of peoples from the Abrahamic line that were rejected. It, this, this is the story of Sefer Breshit. This Midrash is really the story of Sefer Breshit. It captures that and it says... If you want to understand why God came to give the Torah to the Jewish people, you can't possibly begin to think about that until you understand the context. The context is the, is, is, is the book of Breshit. And what, in, in a bigger picture, what does that mean? It means that essentially God really did want to give the Torah to everybody. God created the world. He didn't create Jews. He created humans. And he wanted to have a relationship with all people. And somehow or another, for whatever reasons that we're not going to go into now, but somehow or another, that failed. And it failed once, and it failed a second time. It failed once when uh, the story of Noah had failed the second time in the story of Babel, until finally God said, okay, we have to change plan. Right? We, we, we have to go, and I, I need to work with, with, um, with one of them. I need to have somebody on the inside down there who's going to work with the rest of the people. He chooses Avraham. And it turns out that, that within Avraham's family, some, of, some of, the, of the family was considered to be worthy of, for whatever reasons, of continuing, but, but they weren't ready yet. Right? I mean, they had the potential to continue, um, and others were not. And then the same thing happened in Yitzchak's family. Um, and what you have is you have a winnowing down. The book of Breshit is a winnowing down of how God chooses his partners here on earth. Um, that's what this Midrash is all about. Who's going to be the giving of the Torah is not the gift that is bestowed upon us, but rather it is, um, it is uh, the opportunity that God um, has given us to become his partners in sharing his message with the rest of humanity. How did we become God's emissaries to the rest of humanity? That's that my, my simple reading of uh, my simple reading now of, uh, of of that midrash. So what it does is it takes all of the, the entire book of Breshit and and says, now let me tell you what what that book is all about. That book is how do you prepare the people who are going to be God's emissaries to the rest of the world now. That doesn't mean that it worked perfectly from that point onwards. <laughs> let's let's get this straight. Um, but uh, but that's the background behind um, behind this midrash. Um, the reason I chose to bring it today, um, aside from the fact that I think it's appropriate for um, for Shavuot, and uh, and um, I think the message itself is a a valuable message in terms of how we view others um, in the rest of the world. Are we God gave us the Torah because we're better than everybody else, or God gave us the Torah because he, he wanted somebody to be able to bring his message to the rest of humanity. Um, I thought there was a profound, um, a profound message in my own, uh, my own sort of in, interaction with Midrash in general, and this Midrash in specific. Uh, we hear them as children, and we relate to them on, in very childish kinds of terms. And then we 
hit our adult years and we challenge them in every way possible. Um, and for good reasons, because we're challenging the childish reading of the Midrash. Some people get stuck at that stage and they say, okay, <laughs> and, just, uh, and just throw it all out. Um, but the challenging is an important stage in order to be able to get to an appreciation of the Midrash as, re- as reflecting more profound kinds of ideas that sometimes only as adults can we actually begin to appreciate. I think we go through that, our students go through that as well. Um, if we're teaching elementary school, so uh, if younger children will, will absorb whatever you give them and, and just take it in. Um, when they get to the high school years, it can be a lot of challenging, um, and we need to embrace that challenging. That's a very important part of, of their relationship with Torah. Um, and then to give them um, pathways that they can learn to explore on their own that, uh, that will help them understand that the challenging is going to, could lead them to a much deeper appreciation of some of the core Jewish values. Responses? Yeah, no, I, I love that kind of arc that you painted in terms of a progression that I think probably many of us can relate to uh, in our journeys as learners of Torah. Um, and I think... Yeah, I think that speaks to very much this idea of, you know, Matan Torah as, you know, we were given this gift and now it's on us to make of it what we will. And naturally, within one person, that'll look very different. And certainly between teacher and student, that'll look different. And then between generation to generation, that'll look different. And that that, I think, is that process is very much built into this whole notion of, of Matantara and why are we learning all night each year, every year? Because every year it's a new engagement. There's something else to discover and that we're bringing a new self to that process. Um, and so to something that we liked last year, now we have a challenge for it, et cetera, something along those lines. Um, I think that's a lovely idea. It's also a reminder of that, you know, it's a difficult philosophical question. Why did only the Jewish people get the Torah? If Torah is so fantastic and wonderful then why wouldn't God want everyone to have it? Uh, and I think that whole question of universalism, particularism, which uh, I think for kids and young adults and everyone, right, every uh, uh, Jewish person who's, who also considers themselves a humanitarian is, or in, is, is struggling with that question. Uh, and I think it's an important reminder that as we're thinking about that question of the Jewish people receiving the Torah, the, the next question for some is, so why not everybody else? Uh, and what are we saying when we don't say it's for everybody else and at the same time we care about everybody else? Uh, and I think, as you pointed out, that's a question also emerges from Sefer Breshit also, right? Why Avraham? And then why does this family get whittled down until you get to Yaakov? And often the Torah itself doesn't really explain why one is worthy, one is not worthy. So it shows you that there's there's a, a, a deep challenge in this celebratory cheesecake-based <laughs> festival uh, that could really emerge for a lot of students once they start to reflect on it, like, you know, in terms of uh, receiving the Torah. Oh, I guess I'm up now. Is that correct, mm-hmm. Ruvain? Ruvain's yeah. nodding. So I chose something very radical, I'm excited to say. Uh, I chose a song, uh, a contemporary uh, 
Israeli song by uh, Shuli Rand. Shuli Rand himself is a very interesting character. He was already an accomplished actor and performer in Israel, and he went through a whole process of becoming very observant. He's actually Haredi, uh, but he still sings and he still performs. Uh, for those of you who see the movie Ushbizin, he's probably American audiences are most famous for that. So he wrote a song called Arafel, The Mist or The Cloud. Uh, and it's about Moshe going into the cloud. So I'm going to share it with you. I'll try to translate it. My translation's not terrific, but you'll bear with me. Are you going to sing it? No, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> oh, that's when you decide to speak up, Ruvain, at that moment? Uh, <laughs> and, okay. And uh, so here it goes. Here it goes. Histakalti lachor ye chorvot. Mismoli umimini hakol ola belahavot, Lenai nigle shviel mit patel, Bilibo ashan mehuseb arafel. I looked behind and saw piles of ruins. To my left and to my right, everything was going up in flames. Uh, to my eyes was revealed a twisting path. In his heart, smoke covered with a cloud. Uh, all the people that were kola amasheriti namdu merachok, veneem litsinim, haiti ulishok. So he's already identifying that from Yirmiyahu. The entire nation was with me, was standing at a distance. Uh, it was like daggers in their eyes. I was like a mockery to them. What will be, will be, I said to my, I whispered to myself, this is the time to march into the cloud. And then the chorus, uh, because there, because there, because there is God. I did not. I only took with me food enough for one day. Before me or before myself, I placed the special God. In my heart are thorns, but in my mouth there is praise. Like an ancient hero. I walked into the RFL, into the cloud. Kidmuni Hatsufim Bafahim Umakalot, Vanil Umatam Shar Bishivim Kolot, Eya Sharia Haitimit Palel, the Chotcha Nichnas the Otoha Rafel. Those who came before me were brazen uh, with sticks and shields, uh, and I, unlike them, sang in 70 languages. What will be, I will be what I will be, I, I prayed. For your honor, I went in into the RFL. So what I like about the poetry there, uh, this idea that on Shavuot, it, it's this festive thing, and we kind of recount in a certain way the remembering of Har Sinai, of, of Mount Sinai and Revelation. As you said, it's chesed and gifts and being chosen in relationship. And what I like about this is he depicts a Moshe who is very confused and frightened and overwhelmed, and understanding that the encounter with God is going to be surrounded in a cloud. Like, Arafel has that beautiful language of like a fog, where things aren't clear. Uh, and I like that image, especially for Shavuot, because receiving the Torah did not make everything clear. Right? That even in that moment where things should have been clearer than they ever could be, because God is revealed... There should be no more questions. Everything should be clear and understood, and our path is clear, and our job is clear, and our mission is clear. And lo and behold, we discover that in this encounter with God, nothing really is made perfectly clear. Uh, how we're supposed to do it, and like you said, we keep studying the Torah, not only because there are new things to find, but because there's no end to trying to figure it out. We never come away with a sense of, I got it now. 
It's like, maybe I have it. Oh, but see, Gromit has it, and Rachel has it, and Ruvain has it, and it's all different than me. How can we all have it? Uh, and we keep digging and keep searching and exploring because, in a way, it's always shrouded in this fog. And I think, for me, that's a very uh, powerful educational message that uh, it's never going to be over. There's never going to be this complete clarity. There's never this moment of total understanding. You don't graduate from sixth grade to seventh grade because, ah, I now finished that piece of Torah. Next year, we're going to do Shemot because brace sheet I got. Now I know what that book's about. I go on to this other book. But uh, in a way, it's a very challenging message for kids and for adults, this idea that you know, you're not going to reach bottom. You're not going to reach a point where it's all going to be clear and you're not going to have questions, but you have to somehow celebrate being in the fog instead of... And most of us have a hard time being in the fog. Uh, you have to somehow learn to celebrate being in the fog. I mean, I think to me that feels like an important reminder for teachers how important it is for us to emphasize the process or, you know, along with the product, but maybe even above the product, because, you know, you're never done with the answers, you're never done knowing all the material, but how we learn, how we engage, how we act with one another, you know, the questions we, as students and as teachers and as, you know, learning community bring to a text, um, and uh, and how we evolve as learners, you know, as Tvi was alluding to, um, th- that has to be really important, otherwise you just constantly are stumbling around in the fog feeling frustrated as opposed to feeling like well we're we're moving we're, we're going forward we don't know exactly where but we are we're in this we're we're trying um which hopefully could be empowering uh, as you were reading the uh, the song um i in my own mind there was a whole different process going on i wasn't thinking about the darkness the rfl which is the name of the song um i was thinking about the way he portrays moshe as a very lonely figure, mm. um, meaning the people who are supposed to be supporting him, they've got the daggers in their eyes, and the people who are supposed to be, those who are supposed to be welcoming him, which I assume he, he's referring to the angels, they're, they're approaching him also with, with tremendous amount of negativity. There are a lot of Midrashim about this stuff, but what, brought, what that brought out was that, you know, we think of Moshe being the representative of the people going to receive the Torah, and this this song talks about how lonely the process can sometimes be, and sometimes you just have to go it alone, no matter what. Uh, you have to take that leap. You have to follow what your gut tells you, um, uh, and and jump in there and and do the right thing. So we're going to come back, and we're going to. I'm going to ask both of you, how would you like that message of Chesed? Uh, to affect you. How do you want to come out of this Shavuot a little bit changed from how you came in? Rachel. Um, Yeah, that's obviously (laughs) um, an important question. Um, I, I mean, I think for me when, you know, life gets busy and demands get busy um, and it feels like there's never enough time for anything, um, and, and certainly, you know, the rituals and rhythms, um, 
preparing for a Chag and the cooking and the, you, you know, it's, it's two-day Chag and Shabbat and do you have enough food and there's no childcare the days before and all these other things that are in my mind, that's where my life is at. Um, and so I think it's all the more important to just... I'm grateful for the opportunity to have some time to think, you know, for this podcast to be, to go into that process and then the Chag itself, just a reminder of what I hope is being the ability to find some balance there in terms of engaging with others and ensuring that, you know, my Torah study and my observance of the Chag isn't coming at the expense of thinking about the needs of my community, um, yeah, I guess I can report back after Shavuot <laughs> if, I, if I if I manage to do that with any any success or grace. But um, I will family, try to keep that. Your family with me. and community can report back. Yes. Yeah. Oh, much better. Yes, that would be a more authentic yes. text for understanding. Yes. <laughs> See, um, I, the the way you framed it, um, I think uh, I think captures to a large extent my uh, my my ongoing struggle with the universalism and particularism and how. How that affects me, meaning um, I've got little kids at home. I teach big kids. Um, and what? how do you balance that message um, of universalism and particularism when you're talking to an 8-year-old or a 12-year-old? Um, they can't handle that kind of complexity. Um, and, and how do you do that? So um, this is going to leave me with, uh, with, with big questions. Okay. So I guess uh, for me, I have to learn to embrace the fog. I don't like fog. I don't like driving in it. I don't like flying in it. Uh, I get scared when I can't see what's in front of me. or I don't know what to expect. And uh, I have to see this as an exercise in accepting the Torah in a fog. Uh, And to sometimes I find myself pointlessly waiting for answers or clarity, even though I realize it's not going to come, and, and I have to embrace that as opposed to being angry about it. So I think that's uh, the lesson. I feel like I'm always trying to learn that lesson, but maybe this year I'll make a little bit of progress uh, around Shavuot if I uh, listen to the song enough times. Maybe that will help me. Uh, any closing thoughts from anybody? I had a question. For yes. Um, how, do you understand Nasev and Nishma as um, be? trust despite the fog we trust you despite the fact that we have no clue what, what we're getting ourselves into um, and, and how do you relate to that meaning jumping into something that you don't know is something that we often discourage people from doing uh, yeah <laughs> although most of the important things in life that we do we jump in without knowing right we don't know what it's going to be like living with the life partner that we've chosen we don't know what it's going to be like to parenting the child children that we're given we don't know what it's going to be like to teach the students that we're about to face right we jump in everything is not sevenishma to a certain point are the big things because we trust that uh, something good's going to come out of it but we never really know. And I think I fight all those things, too. But uh, uh, in a way, we're, in, we're asking for our students' trust, that some, and, and, and God asks for our trust. And uh, so, yeah, I think we're, we move a lot in the fog. I think we try to resist it, and we try to set up headlights and figure out how to make it seem like we're not in the fog. But uh, Or try to convince ourselves we're seeing things that maybe we're not actually so seeing as clearly exactly. as we want to believe. Yeah. So uh, I think your point is really well taken. The Jewish people were heroic, but I guess in a way 
being a human being, going back to the universalist point, and functioning in the world, investing in things like people and Torah and community and children and everything else that we invest in is all an investment that we hope is going to turn out, but we don't get guarantees and we don't get you know the instruction manual as we do it. Even the Torah is not an instruction manual in that sense that tells us how it's all going to work out. So, wow, we ended deep on this one. So, Kola Kavod, so I want to thank both Svi and Rachel for joining and adding a lot of wisdom. I know it's going to help my Shavuot, and I intend to steal what they said and claim it in my own name. Uh, I want to thank uh, Ruvain for his uh, tireless efforts in holding the mic and... Uh, pointing to us and orchestrating behind the scenes uh, and it's been a privilege to be with all of you anybody else any last words before we sign off thanks all right thank you guys for Chag being Sameach. here and i hope okay. oh, yeah and uh, don't eat too much cheesecake for more digital content go to elmud.pardes.org and to learn more about sponsorship email jamie at pardes.org See you next time.